Well, hey everybody at Pursuit NYC. It is a joy to be with you today. And uh, I'm so honored that you'd ask me to speak into what it is that God is doing amongst you. I've poked around your website and seen what God's been doing uh, on your Instagram. And I've always been so built up and so encouraged. And even though it's only been at a distance, I felt a very strong and very strange resonance around the themes and vision that you carry. So it is a joy to be able to connect like this. And again, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I wanted to give you a teaching today about prayer that leads to revival. And it's how we grow in our prayer life that ultimately leads us to becoming the kinds of people that God can entrust with his power. And I'd like to speak from Luke chapter 22. This is going to be verses 39 through 46. It says this, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is God's word. Now, when it comes to prayer, we all know that we should pray. Muslims bow down and pray five times a day. The Jewish community pray by the wailing wall, asking for their Messiah to return. Buddhists pray and meditate. It's become a popular part of our collective life. But if we were to be really honest, sometimes we can feel frustration around prayer. When all the hype wears off, it can seem like God doesn't answer us. Sometimes we get so caught up praying a formula or listening to a new teaching that it basically becomes some sort of technique that we are trying to master rather than a relationship that we are entering into. So how is it exactly that we grow in prayer until we become the kinds of people that God can entrust with an outpouring of His Spirit? And so one of the things I've learned and noticed over the course of time is that this normally goes through three phases. The first one is this. It's when we pray prayers of request. And this is when we're learning to trust the character of God and he's answering us. This is a passage we see in Matthew chapter 7. It says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is a beautiful stage of growing in prayer. It's just childlike faith. We're little children who come to God and we just ask him for whatever we want. I remember one Father's Day, our church did what many churches did, which was they get little montages of kids saying what it is that they love about their dads. And I didn't have any input into this and I wasn't aware of exactly what it was. And so I was a little nervous waiting in front of the whole church to see what my kids were going to say about me as a dad. 
And so it gets to my son and he says, you know, I love my dad because he always plays with, plays with me. And then other kids come through and then it, it comes to my daughter. And with the biggest smile ever, she looks into the camera and she says this, I love my dad because he gives me everything I want. And then it moves on. And I could feel sort of like collective judgment from the congregation. Is, is Pastor Tyson spoiling his daughter? Well, the answer is, Yes, absolutely, I spoil my daughter. I love her, she's 17 now, loves God, beautiful, wonderful young woman. But what I was trying to do in my relationship with my daughter at that stage of her life was establish my character to her. I'm for you, I love you, you can trust me. And you've probably experienced something like this in the early stages of your own faith. You say yes to following Jesus and it feels like you literally have God on tap. Lord, if you're real, I pray that I would bump into my friend from college I haven't seen in four years. And then 30 steps later on the street, you bump into them. And you're like, oh my gosh, I just pray that this would happen. Or perhaps you need an opening for a job or you need an apartment and you pray and you pray and God gives you exactly what your hearts desire. In the early stages of doing this, what God is trying to do is establish his character. He's good. He's powerful. We can trust him. When I was a new Christian, I became a Christian uh, the weekend I turned 17 at a Pentecostal youth camp. I had, this, I had this overwhelming sense that God wanted me to come to the United States and to work for revival and restoration in the Western church. I just had this profound sense of call. And so a miracle happens. I, I'd also dropped out of high school when I turned 16 to work in, work in a meat factory. And so I prayed and prayed, God, open a door for me to go to America. God, open a door for me to come to the United States. And then one day I'm at work at the butcher shop and I get a phone call from my dad and he says this to me, John, do you want to go to Bible college? Yes, dad, you know it's the deepest cry of my heart. Well, I found someone who wants to give you a full scholarship to study theology. There's only one condition. Would you be willing to go to America? And I was like, talk to me, baby. Talk to me. I got it open a door. It was a miracle. I wasn't even a high school graduate. I was getting led into college. And yet, I was at that, that pure place in my heart where I wanted to say, okay, God, if you want me to leave Australia, and I had a deep sense I was never coming back, if you want me to come and leave Australia and come to the United States, you've got to give me a sign. So I took the money that I had saved to pay for my airfare to come to the United States and I bought 200 copies of the Jesus film, and I went to all of the neighbors in my community, and I knocked on their door, and I said, folks, how's it going? Uh, it's John the Butcher here. Hey, look, I'm, I'm going over to America to go to Bible college, but I just wanted to make sure you understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus. So here's a copy of the Jesus film. Watch this. This is where you'll find life. So I gave out 200 copies spent my money for my ticket and my trust was like, God, if you're real, show me a sign, prove it to me. Well, the money wasn't coming in. And I thought, well, maybe this is a distraction or maybe God doesn't want me to. On my farewell party, moving forward by faith, I got a bunch of cards that were given to me and as I opened them, you can guess what happened, money just started falling out and it was the exact amount of money that I needed for my ticket to come to the United States. That was the early stage of my faith, just prayers of request. Lord, please, come on, show me. Come on, give it to me, please, Lord. 
And God stepped in and he answered my prayer. He was establishing as a pattern in my life, a foundation. I got power, I hear you, you can trust me. And it's amazing when you look at the ministry of Jesus, one of the biggest questions Jesus asked of people, what do you want me to do for you? And so we need to see that this first stage of prayer is a stage where God is giving us his heart and we're learning to ask of him. And it's not an inferior stage to the next stage of prayer, but it is a stage of prayer that we cannot stay in. Because like all true parents, if we give our kids whatever we want when they want it, they're not going to develop their character. Their gifts are not going to flourish. They're not going to develop to their full redemptive potential. And so God often at some point begins to draw us into the second phrase of prayer. And this is prayers of relationship. And these are prayers where your heart is just to be with God himself. It's not about what he can do. It's not about God's hand. It's about God's face. It is an orientation from where he's moving to seeing him for who he is. Psalm 27, 4 says this, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And this is the great cry of King David's heart. He wasn't just a military warrior. He wasn't just a king leading a nation. He was a worshiper who just wanted to see God's face. This was the deepest part of his heart. Now, it's, it can be interesting because when you sense that God is drawing you from this earlier phase or stage of prayer into the second one, it can be a little disorienting because instead of getting everything what you want, you begin to feel a holy longing and a dissatisfaction because you realize, I don't want the stuff God gives me. I want himself. I want God himself. And this is God drawing us deeply into our heart, into his heart. Now, I've noticed two things that happen uh, in this particular stage of prayer. Two cries are released. The first one is the Abba cry. God begins to speak into our spirit and to primarily unite our heart and our spirit with his. The Abba cry. This is what we read in Romans chapter 8. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, in the Greek, this word cry doesn't mean to speak in a monotone voice. It means to raise the voice. It is an actual cry that comes from our inner being. And at this, at this particular moment, what God's developing within us, he's breaking off any works mentality that is left, and he's breaking off any orphan spirit that says we have to do things to gain God's acceptance. And at this season, the Abba cry is just fundamentally about my spirit connecting with his spirit. It's not about what he does. It's about who he is. And it's about taking all of my longings and pointing them at him, my father. This is the second stage. God also begins to release during this, uh, this season of prayer or this stage of prayer, the bridal cry. And this is the cry of the church. And this can often be a a really heartbreaking and troubling cry because what we begin to see is the brokenness of the world. We begin to see the dysfunction. We begin to see the evil. We begin to see the injustice. And we get a realization that no matter how much effort and no matter how much God moves, we're not going to live into a realized kingdom until we see him face to face. And so we begin to cry like we read about in Revelation 22. It says, the spirit and the bride Say, come. 
The Spirit and the Bride say, come. When I was a new believer, when I was in the getting stuff that I wanted from God phase, I was like, Jesus, I want you to come back, but first I want to get married. I want to have sex. Jesus, please don't come back until I get married. And then, okay, now that I'm married, Jesus, don't come back until I have kids. Now that I have kids, okay, Jesus, don't come back until I see a move of God. All of these things before were about what he would do. But in this stage, you just the deepest cry of your heart is for the realized kingdom. It's for immediate presence. It's for its face-to-face, eternal encounter and belonging. And so that, that is what God develops in this second phase. And here's what God's doing. He's freeing us from an addiction to outcomes. And because of our American consumer Christianity, we often use God as a commodity. He's good as long as we're getting stuff. We don't value him for who he is. And in this phase, God is often freeing us from outcomes. It's about loyalty, faithfulness, depth, and intimacy. And we see this in the Old Testament with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the story where they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And there's this one little insight that's always stood out to me here. It's their willingness to die out of loyalty. It's a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And here's, here's, the th- here's what it says. But even if he does not, even if he doesn't, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. And this is just a season where God begins to draw us in. The Abba cry, the bridal cry. It's not about what you do, it's about who you are. Now, just one caution about this movement in the development of prayer is that sometimes you can become self-righteous in this phase. You can look at people who are still in that stage where God is answering prayers radically and immediately. You can say, oh, you only love God for what he does. But we need to be humble and we need to realize that we're all in our own journeys And so don't look down on other people, the seasonal stage that they're in. Just enjoy this stage. Enjoy the intimacy. Enjoy the presence of Abba. Let that cry for his kingdom to come, to enter into the eternal vision of life with him. Let that soak up. Let that saturate. Let that marinate in your heart and let that shape you. And here's why. Because the next stage that God draws us into the stage that actually leads to revival and awakening is a painful stage of prayer that very few people ever get to. And it's why there's so little breakthrough in our city, in our churches, and in our region. And that's not prayers of request to see what God can do for us. That's not prayers of relationship where we just want to be with Him and enjoy Him. It's prayers of relinquishment where we surrender our agenda and become the kinds of people that God can use to bring his kingdom into the world. Now, I know that you probably think, no, that's why I'm here. That's why I love pursuit. This is why I'm in this thing. But I want to promise you there's layers of surrender that we rarely get to. As A.W. Tozer says, we want revival on our terms, not God's terms. And God's terms are often very different than ours. And so much of this is about surrendering and letting go. The word relinquishment or the word to relinquish, I like this because it's an intriguing word. It's a strong word. It means literally to give up, 
to renounce, to surrender, to release and to let go. And this is ultimately what we see in the ministry of Jesus. Look what Jesus says from this text I read at the start of this talk. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Jesus knew that in order for breakthrough to come, Jesus knew in order for deliverance to come, somebody had to pay the price. And Jesus knew the burden was going to fall on him for the breakthrough of others. And he knew the cost. The cup he was about to drink, he said, is there any other way? And there wasn't. It seems that the only prayer that Jesus ever prayed for himself was this one prayer and the prayer was not answered. The only prayer he prayed out of self-concern was this prayer, and it was not answered. It's certainly ultimately what God is doing is this, he's bringing us to a place in our relationship with him. He's bringing us to a place in prayer where he's making us the kinds of people that actually want his will. Now, I think we want versions of his will. We want Christian ideas of his will. But to actually enter into the crucible of surrender, where we're willing to go to warfare at a principality level, sacrifice at a visceral level, hostility and rejection at a primal level, so few people are willing to go there. So we want revival. We just want it on our terms. But this stage of intimacy and prayer is where God makes us into the kinds of people willing to do his will. And that will is very rarely the will of the modern American church. Philip Yancey says this, In the end, I learned that God has ordained prayer as a means of getting God's will done on earth, not ours. God's will, not ours. See, ultimately, if we are willing to break through into this level of surrender, it would change our vision. It would change our vision. If I was to ask the typical person in a church today, what do you want out of life? Like, like what do you want? What's the cry of your heart? My guess is that it would go something like this. Well, I want to marry someone I'm really attracted to who brings me joy. I want to have a couple of kids and maybe more than that, but... I'd love to have kids. I'd love to have a pet, a fun pet, clean pet. Um, I'd love to get a, a house or an apartment that just feels like home that we can just nest in and raise our family in. I'd love to get a job that pays really well, but it doesn't have too demanding hours. I'd love to have enough money to go on a several great Instagram-worthy vacations every year. And when I retire, I'd love to not have to worry about money. Now, here's the thing. It's not that these words, these visions are implicitly wrong. It's just, that's the vision of every person in America. And there's got to be a deeper vision and a deeper burden and a deeper outcome for followers of Jesus. And that's what prayer does. Prayer changes our desires where we're not content with the status quo. We're willing to surrender the status quo and pay whatever price is necessary for God to break in and for God to move. That's why Eugene Peterson says this. Be slow to pray. Prayer puts us at risk of getting involved with God's conditions. Praying most often doesn't get us what we want, but what God wants, something quite at variance with what we conceive to be in our best interests. 
And when we realize what is going on, it is often too late to go back. Prayer will change our vision. This kind of prayer also changes our motives, why we do what we do. Look at how Richard Foster puts this. It means freedom from self-sins, self-sufficiency, self-pity, self-absorption, self-abuse, self-aggrandizement, self-castigation, self-deception, self-exaltation, self-deprecation, self-indulgence, self-hatred, and a host of others just like them. It means freedom from the everlasting burden of always having to get our own way. It means freedom to care for others, to genuinely put their needs first, to give joyfully and freely. See, so often in environments hungry for revival, we want revival as long as I'm the person or ministry that gets to bring revival. But in an environment like this, when you're standing before the living God, the only thing you care about is Him and others and you're not the determining factor in the midst. And do you know how deep a work the Holy Spirit has to do inside of us where we're willing to embrace obscurity? Getting into the presence of God, praying the dangerous prayer of surrender. It's a willingness to have a move of God without you being personally recognized or responsible for it happening. And then the last thing that prayer does is that prayer changes our will. When we surrender to God, we don't just give up our power, we get access to His. It's not a gritted teeth. It's not self-control. It is tapping into the power of God that enables us to descend and to sacrifice and suffer and to take the burden on so that breakthrough happens. This is what Haddon Robinson said. Where was it that Jesus sweat great drops of blood? Not in Pilate's hall, nor on his way to Golgotha. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Had I been there and witnessed the struggle, I would have been worried about the future. If he's so broken up when all he's doing is praying, I might have said, what will he do when he faces a real crisis? Why can't he approach this ordeal with the calm confidence of his three sleeping friends? Yet, when the test came, Jesus walked to the cross with courage and his three friends fell apart and they fell away. This is the input of the power of God that is only fully activated when we're willing to surrender any and all power of our own. And that's ultimately why Jesus said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Soren Kierkegaard said this, God creates everything out of nothing. And everything which God is to use, he first reduces to nothing. So, Pursuit NYC, I know you have a heart for a move of God in this city. I know you love this region. I know you burn for revival. But the reason we're not seeing what it is, is because we're not willing to give up control and fully relinquish our vision so that only the Father's will is being done. 
And so I want to just challenge you for a few moments right now. I just want to speak to your heart. While I've been saying these things, is there anything the Holy Spirit has been saying to you, prompting in you, just putting his finger on ever so gently that you need to surrender? Do you need to surrender recognition? Do you need to surrender outcomes? Maybe you're in a relationship right now and God says, I need you to surrender that to me. Maybe you're in a job right now and you've been resisting the call of God and he says to you, I I want your time, I want your schedule, you've got to surrender it. You see, revival will come when God finds enough people so deeply transformed that they actually want his will, not theirs. And that's why so little of it is happening in our world today. It is a level of desperation beyond what God can do and who God is where we actually are so transformed on the inside out where we actually want not American Christianity, not the things we've read about in the past, but we want breakthrough in this moment and we're willing to surrender any of our own agendas to see God do it. So would you pray that? Would you just pray that right now? Holy Spirit, search me. Know me. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. And as we press in, as we get to this level of intimacy with Jesus where we just hand our hearts and our lives, our schedules, our agenda, our vision over to him, it's my prayer that as we build an altar of surrender, the fire will fall and that we'll both see with our own eyes the move of God that our hearts have ached for. Amen.